Welcome back, everyone, to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. My name is Daniel Rogers, your host, and I am so glad that you're able to join me today. Today we're talking about worship. We talked about worship two weeks ago in the uh, first episode in this new uh, mini-series I'm doing, answering your questions from the Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace discussion group on Facebook. So if you want to get in on the action there, uh, feel free to join and to participate in that. Last week was episode one, and we talked about nor- we talked about the normative principle versus the regulative principle. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, what we talked about was whether or not there is a pattern of worship. And today we're going to be using some of the conclusions we reached from last week's episode to talk about instrumental music in worship. All right, that was one of the main uh questions that people ask in the Facebook group, what is allowed, what is not allowed in worship, and specifically, of course, instrumental music uh, was at the top of that list, right? So if you haven't listened to that episode last week, I encourage you to do it. It's only 27 minutes long, but I'm going to give you a quick rundown of it right here, all right? So in the Reformation, not the Restoration Movement of the 19th century, but the Reformation Movement of Luther and Calvin and those guys, there were basically two streams of thought. One was the regulative principle, and this kind of came from Calvin and his group, with some history, of course, going back even further than that. The regulative principle is that there is a blueprint for how the church is supposed to function in terms of its government, in terms of its worship, right? What is allowed and what isn't allowed is based upon whether or not you can find something specifically prescribed in Scripture, One passage that's often quoted would be like Philippians, follow the same rule, mind the same things, right? And so in the churches of Christ, coming from the Presbyterian church, coming from this Calvin uh, sort of lineage, we have adopted the regulative principle. There has to be a pattern of worship. There has to be a blueprint. And unless we look to that, we cannot be the true church of Christ, right? However, Luther and his descendants, they followed more of what's called the normative principle. That is, if something is not specifically condemned by Scripture, and it's not violating a gospel principle, right? If, if that is, if it produces fruit of the Spirit, then against such things there is no law. And so if you want to have multiple cups on Sunday morning, go for it. Why? Because there's not a blueprint anyways, right? It doesn't matter what the Greek says about this cup, that cup, whatever. They divided the cups. There, there's not a blueprint, so go for it. You want to use instruments? Okay, there's not a blueprint, so go for it. <laughs> there's no condemnation of it, so have at it, right? So <clears throat> these two different ways of approaching Scripture, right, are uh, they've been debated for years and years and years. This isn't something that Campbell and Stone or whoever, Raccoon John Smith, just woke up one day and was like, oh, my goodness, we need to find a pattern of worship. No, they come from a long line of people who believed who believe this because of their heritage, and that's where we get it too, right? Normative versus regulative. Now, here's the basic premise of last week. If there is no pattern of worship, if there is no blueprint for what we need to do on Sunday morning, if the five acts of worship, so-called acts of worship, don't really exist, then it doesn't matter what you do as long as you're loving God and loving your neighbor, Right? Now, let me challenge you to do something. Go into your Bible software, biblehub.com. If you have a Bible program, you can try it here. Or go into your Strong's Concordance that you got when you were learning how to do word studies in middle school. And look up the word worship. Just read through the New Testament, one after the other. 
There's, there's dozens and dozens of references. Guess what you're never going to find? You're never going to find a passage that outlines a Sunday morning worship assembly. Do you know, do you know what you will find, though? You will find Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, which says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, on the basis of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Have you ever heard that we're priests in the kingdom of God? I grew up hearing that. Totally, totally believe it, too. Well, what do priests do? Priests offer worship to God. Isn't that what they did in the Old Testament? What is then our act of worship? It's not singing, praying, preaching, giving Lord's Supper, you know, on Sunday morning. <laughs> it is our lives. Our lives are lived as an act of worship. Now, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1, potentially Paul, maybe Priscilla, who knows. He says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. Regulations for worship, the word uh, regulation there, that is a righteous commandment. The word worship there, that is divine service. That is what the priests were to perform in the temple on, sun, uh, on a Saturday. He says the first covenant had these kinds of regulations. But whenever you look into it, you don't find these regulations for the new covenant, uh, you know, plainly laid out. You have requirements of the law and talking about, uh, you know, talking about circumcision and things like that. But you don't have anything that says, hey, these are the regulations for worship in the Christian community. It's just simply not there. We have made that up. So one of the commenters uh, asked a question about instrumental music, and she wanted to know, where do we draw the line between law and tradition? Well, the, the idea here is, I think, that there is no law when it comes to how we worship on Sunday, except for, are we showing love towards God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and are we loving our neighbor as ourself? Are we violating the conscience of our brother and sister in Christ? Are, as Paul said, all things are to be done for edification. Are we edifying each other? Are we building each other up? That's what matters. That's what counts. And so the, the distinction between law and tradition is non-existent because there is no law for how we are to worship on Sunday morning. In Romans chapter 14, talking about religious regulations, this, these aren't just matters of opinion in Romans 14. These were big deals to these folks. What do we eat? What days do we keep holy? Right? Paul, Paul says the kingdom of God is not in food and drink. In other words, it's not in these regulations, but it's in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and has human approval. He says, let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. So you know what this means? This means that your congregation, wherever you worship, <laughs> instruments would not bring peace. Instruments would not bring joy. Instruments would not bring mutual up, building up, right? Mutual edification. And so guess what your leadership should not do? <laughs> your leadership should not then employ an instrument until everyone in your congregation would be okay and supportive of that, right? Until people in your congregation would understand that there's liberty there. See, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 are not permanent stops that you have to stay at forever and ever and ever, waiting on everybody else to, you know, agree on something. 
what they are are their temporary resting points for brothers and sisters in Christ to help each other and to encourage each other to let everyone move together at the same pace, right? This isn't an excuse to throw up roadblocks for you know an entire congregation. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 are trying to teach us that we should love each other and be patient with each other and bring each other along, not excuses to have someone stay at their stay where they're at in bondage, believing a lie for the rest of their life, right? So drawing a line between law and tradition is pretty easy, in my opinion, because there if there is no law, then whatever tradition your particular congregation upholds is okay. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> as long as they are not violating the conscience of their brothers and sisters in Christ, and as long as they are loving God and loving their neighbor. That kind of freedom seems a little bit shocking to us because we're so accustomed to hearing five acts of worship, follow the pattern, we have to follow the same rule, we have to mind the same thing. And we take these passages out of context, context and apply them to a Sunday morning worship service when the Bible never even uses the word worship to refer to a Sunday morning assembly as far as I can tell. All right, Let's talk about music in the New Testament then. There were some questions about whether or not Jews in the first century used instruments. Um, and so it's, it's important for us to tackle that question just momentarily here. Uh, some of these references that I got have come from the Baker Bible uh, Encyclopedia. Uh, Baker, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible is, I think, what it's actually called. Uh, here's a few examples. Matthew chapter 9, verse 23. When Jesus came to the leader's house, this is uh, when Jesus uh, healed, uh, brought someone back from the dead, right? When he came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. But they laughed at him. Of course, when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl got up. Now here we have an example of a uh, a leader's house, right? This is not just your average Joe, but whenever his daughter passes away, he has flute players come to play music at her wake. So it's not like something that was out of the ordinary, you know, for them to have access to instrumental music. Another example, and again, this is an example of a wealthy person, which I think plays a role in our understanding of instrumental music in the first century. Um, whenever the elder son approaches the field, all right, so the prodigal son has come home, the father's rejoiced, he has uh, thrown a big party for the son. When the, when the older son, though, was in the field and he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Luke 15, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 15 and verse 25. So music was used in this instance to celebrate the return of a son. Again, it's a wealthy person. It's not a person in poverty, right? And so they have some degree of uh, leisure in their life, right? And I think, I think, again, that that's somewhat significant. Instrumental music is also used in a negative way uh, in Scripture. Uh, keep in mind, like in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you uh, that they have received their reward. So here are these hypocrites who we could potentially deduced to be, uh, you know, the Pharisees, like, who, you know, one of Jesus's main opponents there in the book of Matthew. Um, 
apparently they were signaling to people that, hey, it's time to time to worship. Hey, it's time to uh, give alms. Look at me. Look at me. Right. He says, you don't do that. You you go into your closet. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And this is potentially why Paul also had some reservations uh, concerning particular instruments, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, there it's used in a negative sense, and I've, I've used that passage to condemn instrumental music in the past. But what are those instruments? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal? They are signal instruments. Hey, look at me. I'm about to worship. Look at me do this great thing, right? All eyes on me instead of all eyes on God. Paul is saying that the, uh, that the, that the tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 were serving as a distraction from pure worship because all they were worried about was, hey, look at me, look at me, look at what I can do. I have the best gift, right? So if anything ever becomes that, which acapella music can become that, by the way, then it's no longer the worship that God wants. That's not God. That's not loving God and loving our neighbor, right? If we are just doing something to be seen of men, then what's the point of that anyways, right? We are, <coughs> our worship should be directed towards God and towards the mutual edification of each other, not towards fulfilling the needs of our own, of our own egos. So regardless of whether or not you use instruments or uh, you sing with acapella music, you know, with no accompaniment of instruments, then it should be to God. It should not be to show off. And you can show off regardless of whether or not you have a guitar. All right, I've seen uh, song leaders who, uh, who would lead singing in such a way to bring attention to themselves as if it was entertainment instead of it being directed towards God. All right. Another, in- another uh, instance that we have of instruments used in the New Testament, oh, we're not going to go to these, but like Matthew chapter uh, 24, verse 31, there was a trumpet that was blown to signal the elect being gathered together by the angels at the uh, second coming of Christ. And so there's a couple of passages in the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, Hebrews chapter 12, where the uh, instrument is used as sort of an eschatological announcement of the arrival of Christ or the presence of God as it is in Hebrews chapter 12. So we're not going to focus on those uh, too, too much. We do have, though, an example of Jesus singing in Matthew chapter 26 that one commenter pointed out. And they were particularly interested in knowing whether or not Matthew chapter 26 uh, could possibly have worship with instruments. Well, the reality is probably not. And the reason why it's probably not, again, is because, you know, Jesus has no place to lay his head, right? As As he said, you know, foxes have holes, whatnot. But Jesus had no place to lay his head. Jesus was not a wealthy individual, Unlike the uh, synagogue leader and unlike the father and the prodigal son story, they most likely didn't have instruments that they carried around from town to town. So it's probably uh, just vocal. And also, there was a, there was an emphasis on vocal music in the first century, as we're going to notice uh, here momentarily from another reading. Uh, but Jesus and his disciples were probably chanting maybe a psalm that had to do with Passover, right? And uh, this, in fact, this is probably what Jesus did whenever he read Isaiah uh, in Luke chapter 4. You recall, he read, I think it was Isaiah 61, if I remember correctly. And when he did that, um, 
<coughs> excuse me, when he did that, he most likely would have been chanting or singing uh, as they did in the synagogue at that time. This would help commit a passage to memory. Uh, it sort of had a flow to it. And so that's probably what Jesus and his disciples were doing as well. There's one more major passage I want to uh, call to your attention. You are already familiar with it, probably. It's in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. Uh, this says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you are slaughtered by your blood. Oh, and by your blood you ransom for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. So this passage mentions 24 elders who are holding harps, have bowls of incense, and they're singing this new song. Uh, this uh, book I'm going to read to you from um, is, is called The Dictionary of New Testament Background. It was published by Evans and Porter in the year 2000, the publishing company. Uh, let's see. There was InterVarsity Press, so you can go look that up if you like. I'll put it uh, in the description below for you. But listen to what he says here. Most scholars also think that singing was unaccompanied, unaccompanied, although the surest evidence for this comes generally from 3rd and 4th century documents, not from the 1st century. This one guy, I'm not going to try to pronounce, pronounce his name up, for instance, points out that in Revelation 5.8, John speaks of a new song and that he expressly mentions that he is accompanied by music. So this guy, he says, hey, you know, most of the anti-instrument uh, literature that we have comes from the 3rd and 4th century, not from the 1st century. In fact, here in Revelation 5, we have an example of people pl uh, playing harps and singing this song, which probably came uh, as another source I was looking at said. I think it was Baker, Encyclopedia of the Bible. Probably came from a, uh, a hymn written by Christians in the first century, right? <clears throat> and as you see there, they have harps. There's no indication that they shouldn't have harps. There's no, like, disclaimer. Like, okay, guys, I know that all of you realize that we are specifically only supposed to worship with our voices, and we are to never use instruments, so don't read too much into this. You know, there's no disclaimer. There's no warning. No, there's no warning label, right? He just casually mentions that these elders had harps. Why would he do that if they weren't uh, normal in the everyday life of first century people, right? Maybe not everyone owned a harp like we own instruments today. You know, a lot of people that I know have a piano in their house. Uh, that might not be true for them in the first century. But it's not like that it was taboo. Otherwise, John would not have mentioned such a thing in the context of people worshiping the Lamb. There's some other things we could be doing in this podcast, uh, by the way, to talk about music in the New Testament. We could obviously go to Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, and I could point out to you how the expression making melody comes from a word which means to pluck or to twang, but you've probably heard that a bajillion times. For that, I would encourage that you go to my friend Dallas's website, freedominchrist.net, and take a look at his paper, God is a Lover of Music. You should be able to locate it. If you can't, uh, let me know, and I'll do my best to help out. 
Now, there was opposition to instrumental music uh, in the first century. <coughs> As I mentioned a moment ago, not Christian opposition necessarily, but uh, opposition in the culture of the day. Here's why. Uh, the, it really comes from the anti-Hellenistic uh, thinking of first century Second Temple Jewish individuals. So, for example, the Greek philosophers considered music to be a cathartic voice, a force that could lead humans into metaphysical knowledge. This understanding led to the belief that music had a moral substance that could influence man to either do good or evil. If the philosophy had totally encompassed Judeo-Christian thought, certainly Paul would have encouraged the use of music in the spread of the gospel. However, Paul's omission of this theory implies that the Judeo-Christian world at that time had rejected the Greek ideal, at least in part. Uh, there was another passage I read which stated that uh, some Greeks even believed that instrumental music could be used to cast out demons, which makes sense to us, doesn't it? Because we're familiar with uh, David and how David played a harp to drive away Paul uh, Saul's evil spirit. Now, the Roman idea, however, uh, is that Instrumental music was simply for entertainment, right? And so while the Jewish rabbis considered music an art form for the praise of God, and the Greek philosophers thought of it as a powerful moral force in creation, the Romans considered music mainly as entertainment. The music of the Roman games was neither uh, religious nor philosophic, and from the accounts of witnesses, it was not technically exceptional. In the Roman Empire, musicians were given a lower status and looked on as mere entertainers. One reason the early church did not include instrumental music in their worship was in reaction to the debased secular use of instruments by the Romans. So there's just a few thoughts there from, again, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible that talk about why there was some opposition to instrumental music in the first few centuries of the early church. Uh, the Greeks thought of it as sort of this moral force uh, the Romans thought of it as entertainment, and musicians were given a lower status, whereas the, uh, whereas the Jews thought music to be a beautiful art form to be used in the worship of God, kind of like David. If you recall, they had skilled Levitical singers uh, in, the, in the temple. They, had, they, were, they were trained, and they were handpicked. Moses used skilled carpenters and artisans in the creation of the tabernacle. Solomon did the same thing in the creation of the temple. They looked for people who had different gifts, right? There's another article, and I'm going to drop this in the description for you here, uh, from My Jewish Learning. Uh, the, the link is myjewishlearning.com slash article slash synagogue dash religious dash music. Now, they talk about here how uh, that Instrumental music was used in the first temple, of course. The Levites had the responsibility of singing and playing instruments as part of the temple practice, right? But as you move into especially the post-second temple era, after AD 70, then uh, at that point the rabbis forbade the use of instruments during prayer. There were two reasons for this post-second temple refusal of uh, instruments. The first is the absence of musical instruments would serve as a sign of mourning for the temple. You might recall the passage in Psalms which says that they hung their harps, you know, on on the trees beside the river. They refused to play because of their mourning over the fall of Jerusalem. However, the rabbis of the Talmud uh, 
oppose the use of instruments and prayer services because of their anti-Hellenistic sentiments. Now, on down the road, they began to use instruments again, and instruments are used in uh, synagogue music even today, right, with organs and guitars and whatnot. But for the first few centuries there, after the fall of the temple, they didn't, primarily because of their uh, mourning over the second temple, but also not wanting to uh, sort of fit into that Hellenistic world, right? Okay, there are, uh, there's a few resources for you there, just some information and trying to answer a lot of these questions we have here. But let's take a look at uh, some pro-instrument arguments. One commenter, he asked, why, would, why do you want to use instruments? You know, why would you want to use instruments? What benefit do they have that you can't get from simply using our voices? I think one of the major arguments, and to me the most important argument from my own personal, from my own personal perspective, is gifting. If someone is a, is a gifted guitar player or a gifted piano player or gifted organist, then that gifting, we believe, comes from God, and they should be able to exercise that gift. If they want to use that gift to worship God and to lead us in worship with all the praise and glory and honor going to Him, then we should encourage that. We should support them and, and lift them up uh, and, and allow them to exercise their gift. Why would we not? If there's no rule against it, if there's no law against it, then, then why would we not? Uh, what harm could it bring, right? Another reason for this is because uh, God is a lover of music. There's this interesting passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 that cites from the Psalms, okay? And particularly it cites from Psalm 45. And it's talking about, the Hebrews writer says this is talking about Jesus, Okay. He says, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. Your royal scepter is a scepter of equity. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory places, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. All right. So here we have this passage that the Hebrews writer says is talking about Jesus. And one of the things it says in Psalm 45, 8 is that string instruments make him glad. Apparently, God enjoys music. God, as I mentioned before, is a lover of music. And you look at the skill of David in authoring all of these psalms that were to be played, uh, that were to be sung accompanied by different stringed instruments then you can see, uh, you know, you, you can really see God's love for that uh, in those passages. He loves to see the things uh, that we create. Uh, he loves the, the way that we can be uh, imaginative and creative. Um, so I think that's why God loves music in the Old Testament, as all through the Psalms and uh, through some of the narrative accounts. And I think that's why God loves music even today. He's given us those gifts. He's given us that creative insight, and so we should exercise that whenever we can. Again, the New Testament doesn't condemn. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, yes, Daniel, but if I ordered a cheeseburger and didn't mention, you know, all the other items on the menu, then I wouldn't expect to get those items. Yeah, okay, I hear you. But listen, the New Testament doesn't condemn, and this is significant not just because the New Testament is silent on it. It's significant because the New Testament specifically goes through different 
things associated with Old Testament worship and says that those things are no longer necessary. Sacrifices, the priesthood, right? The feast days, circumcision, the Sabbath, the other holy days. Those things are not bound upon Christians today. You see that in the book of Hebrews especially, but even in passages like Colossians chapter 2, Romans chapter 14, Acts chapter 10. Those things are specifically said to have, have gone away, right? They're, they're not binding on us Gentile Christians any longer, right? Like they were for the Jews before the time of Christ. So because the New Testament doesn't also condemn those things, the implication is that, is that they could continue, right? He doesn't strike those off the list, you know? The instruments weren't part of the law like sacrifice and like the feast days and like the Sabbath was part of the law. The instruments were used by David uh, later on, and they were used by, um, you know, people throughout throughout the Book of Psalms. You read about all these different instruments that were used, uh, not only uh, in the Book of Psalms, but in First and Second Chronicles as well in the temple. Right, a plethora of instruments. They weren't part of the law of Moses. They were used during that time. They were authorized by God, if you want to use that language. They were even commanded by one of the prophets. Uh, in First and Second Chronicles, but they weren't part of the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So when we talk about the law passing away, we assume instruments are included in that, but no, two, no New Testament author ever says that. In fact, what we see is the opposite of that in Revelation 5 with the elders uh, possessing harps there in that text, right? If the New Testament was so opposed to instrumental music, if God hated instrumental music so much, like he hated the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu, Surely he would have mentioned something, right? Especially given its popularity throughout the ages before. At the end, of, at the end of the day, though, if there is not a blueprint that we must follow on Sunday morning when we worship God, then whether or not to use an instrument ultimately doesn't matter. Personally, I think the ideal service would look something like this: a mixture of a cappella and instrumental worship letting different people exercise their gifts, letting different people get the, get the kind of worship that builds them up the most, while at the same time allowing space for other people to worship in ways that build them up the most. There's no reason to divide a congregation. There's no reason to have two services, a contemporary service and a traditional service. You can have both forms of worship in one space with all Christians worshiping together. To me, I think that that's ideal. But I understand uh, that not every congregation is at a place to be able to do that, right? Okay, well, there's some thoughts on instrumental music in worship. Um, if you want to hear more about this, I know for sure that Kevin and Lee had done some episodes on this earlier. So you just have to go back through the archives and track those down. I'll actually do that for you and put those in the show notes b- below. So do not fear. Just uh, scroll down a little bit on podbean.com and you can find the links to those next week we're going to talk about women's or not next week but the week after next we're going to talk about women's roles in the christian community which will be fitting because next week uh, we have summerly staten who's going to come on and talk about the tree of life and she is a minister up in new york city so be sure to tune in next thursday 5 a.m is when the episode published 5 a.m central time and you can listen to my interview with summerly hope you all have a great day and god bless